it goes back to a favorite scripture of mine where it just says to let us never be weary in doing good. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our CEO, Mike Bros, interviews Becky Frank. Becky is one of Oklahoma's leaders, both in business circles and in civic affairs. She is partner, chair, and CEO of Schnocky Turnbow Frank, a consulting firm that specializes in public relations and leadership development. Becky's also one of the most compassionate people you will ever meet. I can't wait for you to hear this interview that gives perspective on Becky's dedication to helping people experiencing mental illness and homelessness. Okay, let's get the conversation started. The Mental Health Download starts now. I'd like to welcome our listeners today to uh, Mental Health Association's Mental Health Download. Our guest today is uh, a great friend and colleague, Becky Frank, who I've known for a long time. And Becky, we want to welcome you to Mental Health Download podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a fan of your podcast, and uh, I love listening to it in my car when I'm driving between Tulsa and Oklahoma City, and it's just a real privilege to be here with you, Mike. Thank you, Becky. Uh, You know, for our listeners who know Becky, of course, you're well aware. Becky is uh, uh, really, uh, and I know I'll embarrass you here a little bit, Becky, but you're an iconic figure in our state and in our community and uh, admired by so many people. And you're one of my heroes and uh, somebody who's very, very special to me personally, but also to so many people that love and admire you so much, Becky. And to have you on today, we get to sort of ask you some questions and learn a little bit more about you. And I think that'll be really exciting for our listeners to hear from you more about yourself, maybe than they get normally an opportunity to hear about. So uh, let's just start with a little bit about where you uh, tell us a little bit about your growing up years, your siblings, your family, and kind of give us some background there about your formative years. Well, I am from Tulsa. Originally, I've kind of always been a Tulsa gal. I have lived here most of my life, just lived out out of state for just a couple of years, my last couple of years of high school, but grew up here and with my parents and my siblings, had a brother and two sisters. My father was actually an evangelist, and so it was was an interesting experience growing up. He traveled quite a bit, and I was average being gone about 21 days out of the month, so mom really... I had the bulk of the responsibility there raising the four children. She and I were just talking about that over the weekend. She's 91 now, and father passed away seven, excuse me, 15 years ago, had Alzheimer's the last several years of his life. So I had a fascinating ex, uh, upbringing and exposure in a lot of different areas that really helped draw me into the field of public relations. Yeah, I've always kind of wondered about that in terms of uh, your dad being an evangelist and traveled a lot. Did did you get a chance to travel with him much to his meetings and different things that he did as an evangelist? Actually, we did. I can I remember a couple of uh, father daughter trips we got to have where no, none of the other family members with us that were really special memories, and I can just remember what it was like watching him there in that environment. 
I can remember passing uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets where they would take offerings, <laughs> and um, but then and then internationally, I think probably two of the real highlights were um, I remember I turned thirteen in the Holy Land, so that was a trip uh, where we went to Israel, Cyprus, Turkey, and Lebanon. And it was fascinating to go there as a as a young girl. Then part of Dad's ministry was they would have people that would sponsor Korean orphans in orphanages. And so we traveled there. Uh, that was when I was a senior in high school to Korea and along with these people. And they were meeting the children that they had corresponded with over the years. So I remember that as being kind of an emotional trip for people to connect with these children. So no, it was it was um, a lot of fun. Exposed in a lot of different areas. Uh, Dad was was very controversial, just in terms of yes, an evangelist, but also his mantra was for Christ against communism. So he had kind of taken on the communist movement early on in his life, and he was not college educated. Just kind of. Um, just, you know, he was grew up in Texarkana, Texas, but by the time he was 18, he was the senior pastor of the First Christian Church in Sepulpa. Wow. I think he had one suit. He had a white suit and spectator shoes, and he wore them every Sunday. Wow. And so in terms of the order of your siblings, kind of what's the birth order there in your family, Becky? When mom and dad met, they were both B.J. in their initials, so, so B.J.H.'s. So Billy James met Betty Jane. And so then it kind of goes on from there. And I know we sound like the Petticoat Junction or something like that. But so it was Bonnie Jane is my older sister, Billy James uh, Hargis the second, my brother. Uh, I was the third, Becky Jean, and then Brenda Joe, my younger sister. Now, we do not go by Becky Jean and Brenda Joe and Bonnie Jane, by the way, but... <laughs> Well, in our funner moments in the future, I might have to pull that out every now and then. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, uh, and so then, about what about your uh, your high school years here in Tulsa? Where did you go to high school? Well, I was going to a uh, a private Christian school where we had like ten uh, kids in the class, and then I had transferred over to Memorial High School the first semester of my sophomore year. And uh, that's when our family went through some transition, some challenging times at that point, and, um, so, which resulted in our moving to Neosho, Missouri, where mom and dad had a farm. And dad left the ministry and left the college at that time. And um, so we, we moved there, and that's where I spent the last two and a half years of my high school in a public school there. That would have been in what, the mid-70s? Yes, I would have been 75 that we moved there. Then I graduated in 77. So my younger sister and I went there. My older sister stayed here in Tulsa. She was finished college. And then uh, Billy actually moved to South Africa for a short period of time. Okay. And then what about uh, your college experience? I'm very upfront about that. I only attended one semester of college. So I uh, I remember my senior year, Dad came in and said, so Becky, what's it going to be? Are you going to go to Oral Roberts University or to John Brown University? And uh, it was important to him that I went to a Christian college. And I um, was interested in music 
at the time, which is hilarious because I'm doing nothing with music, nor do I have the talent to do that now. But anyway, that's and I knew I had more of a chance to to do that at John Brown um, because I didn't think I'd quite make it as a Oral Roberts University world action singer, <laughs> which was popular at the time. Yes. So, um, so I went to JBU and where I went for a semester and then I uh, met my then husband. He, we actually eloped during finals. And so it was, that's where I met Jay and Jay and I had my daughter Annie together. Uh-huh. Okay. I think this is a really important juncture of time because now you're married, a young mother, but where did this all start to germinate in terms of you know, public relations? How how did that build out of this point in time in your life? Well, I, my first job was actually at John Brown. So I was had Annie and I was home for a couple of years with her and then knew that I really just wanted to have one child. And I knew I needed to be around more adults and that Annie needed to be around more children. So I decided to go to work. And uh, so I went to John Brown. And I'm telling you, my people have been just so good to me through my entire life and have given me opportunities that, you know, I didn't have the formal education for necessarily all the experience for, but people have just been really good to me. And I hope that I live my life where I'm looking for those opportunities to provide that, to pay back, pay that back to others. But that was certainly one of those times. And the John Brown experience working there in public relations uh, was really, that's where that started. It, no doubt though, it my interest comes from growing up watching my father being interviewed by the media, being sought out by the media, and through different things that we went through at that time that he went through, seeing the 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 different sides of stories and and things that happen and and the reality of that and the importance of people telling their stories and um also in in being who they are. So just, I think a lot really stemmed from that kind of an experience. I keep a, a couple of different pictures in my office that uh, I look at every day. I've got one with a picture of dad where he's doing a broadcast in front of a KRMG banner. And, um, and then there's right beside it, there's a black and white photo of him where he's doing a a walk or demonstration of some type in D.C. I wish I knew what it was that he, what the the mission was that day. But it's uh, him walking, and he has a security guard with him on one side. I remember a fellow that was from the Green Beret who was always providing security, and he was also a pilot. And then another reporter, a couple of reporters that are there interviewing Dad as they're walking along. And um, you know, and at the time when Dad died, I um, woke up those next few mornings and would get up very early and just look online and just see things being written about him, the good and the bad, you know, that were uh, written about him internationally. And it was, I remember dreaming about him because it, it's interesting since he's passed, I, there's only a couple of times where I dream of him and I can actually see his face, but it happened like a couple of mornings after he had passed and he was sitting across his desk and I was sitting across from his desk and I was saying, Dad, you wouldn't believe the way all the things they're saying about you. And he had a smile on his face. So <laughs> it was um, just really motivated me to want to be able to work with all types of people and to be able to, um, for people to be who they are, to be able to tell their stories, um, 
you know, there's a term that people use and sometimes that uh, it's typically not a PR practitioner that will say this, but they'll use the term spin, like in that in PR, we're trying to spin stories to tell something that's not true. And that's actually not. If you're a, a good ethical PR practitioner, you're not spinning. You're out working with people and helping them to be able to convey a message or a story. It's about being authentic. It's not making things up. At this point in our history of our country right now and with everything going on, fake news, all the spin that goes on, uh, those sort of values, I think, are more important than ever. It's much to your credit, Becky, that you cling to those core uh, values as that core integrity that's tied to your profession. Sometimes when people hear uh, public relations, they think more along the lines of what you just described rather than the ethics and the genuineness that you've clung to. Um, always uh, that are just built into your DNA. And I, I've observed that over many, many years. And uh, somewhere in there, you were like on the, uh, on, uh, it, you were like a lifelong practicum, if you will, in terms of public relations, if you really think about it in that way, that you were learning and absorbing these lessons from really a young child through your formative years uh, into your adult years. Is that be a fair statement? Absolutely. Mike, I'm still learning every day. <laughs> you know, it's just I've learned so much through the different experiences that I've had with the different clients. And believe me, there are clients that come to you that uh, are, you know, situations that happen where people come to you hoping that you are going to be able to. But that's the beauty of owning your own business and working with great business partners and a great team, uh, because we all really align on these things, and it's important to us. We get to pick and choose the types of type of work we do, and who we represent. So that makes it all uh, worthwhile. We share something similar in common that we both kind of came out of uh, faith based settings. My undergraduate degree was from Oral Roberts University, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know your background. And then yet both of us kind of end up working in, I don't really like the word secular, but it, but a non-faith-based setting. But it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy and have opportunities to work in faith-based, faith-based partnerships. Absolutely. And right. you know, take a, talk a little bit about that philosophy and how you approach that from your histories of your family growing up in a, in a ministry, basically. I think um, ministry just kind of it gets in your blood, you know, and it's, um, and it's, you know, faith continues to be very important in my life. Am I in church every Sunday? No, but it's, it's something I lean on. It's something that's important to me and really has helped me. I, I often wonder how people get through if they don't have their faith or a higher power that they lean on. But it's important to me, and it's. Um, I mean, if you look at the work or go to our website, you'll see that we have that faith-based initiatives are things that are part of what we do, part of the you know number of the clients that we have at different times, and had an opportunity to work with Oral Roberts University for several years, which was really wonderful. And it was you know we we were there during a real the probably the most difficult time of that university's experience through the transition from the founders with the Roberts family. And I'll tell you what I just loved during that time uh, was to see how the people of the community, business leaders, everybody wanted for Old Roberts University to be successful 
and to grow. And no matter what their background was, people from with they could be agnostic, atheist, uh, no matter what denominational background, whatever, everybody wanted to a person wanted for Oral Roberts University to be successful. And they are. I mean, look at what, uh, you know, with the Green family coming in and the the transition that they've been through with, uh, you know, with Mark Rutland coming as president and now Billy Wilson, just a very committed board of trustees there. And it's been wonderful to see how they're not just thriving, but really growing and how diverse that campus is. Oh, my goodness. It's fantastic. You know, just... I always talk about to a lot of Tulsans and Oklahomans don't have no idea the level of diversity that is present on that campus. And Mm -hmm. I know when I went there coming from a small town in southwest Kansas, and then suddenly I'm hanging out with guys from New York, L.A., Nigeria, uh, parts all over the world. And what a big part of my education that was and the strength of of the school. And again, I think for you growing up in ministry and now being a part of the firm, Schnocky Turnbull Frank, which we'll talk more about here in a little bit, but you have a high degree of comfort in working uh, with ministry settings and uh, talking to people of faith or ministry in a way that helps them be comfortable being able to utilize the services that your firm brings to the table. Is that a fair statement there? Absolutely. And it's, you know, we, so it's, again, we have, we have to be honest and, and to be able to, in working with our clients and you have, um, you know, I've seen we've experienced times with some clients who and, and mind you, this happens in all different with different types of clients. But um, where you you need for some ministries that have been more insular and, uh, you know, family boards uh, and so forth and really um, encouraging them to really branch out and really diversify their boards and to uh, really think about the, the people that they serve and make sure that they are representing those people. And it's just been um, really wonderful. And I working with those organizations and to be able to take from experiences that I've had in the past. And, you know, I can relate. I can relate to them. David Wagner, who's one of my uh, three business partners who who we uh, hired from Oral Roberts University, and he leads a lot of our faith-based initiatives and, and clients, represents those clients and works with them. And he's, you know, he can just connect so well with them because he's an ORU graduate. And then he was the uh, led, was the principal of a small Christian school and then came back to Oklahoma to work at Oral Roberts and worked there for over 10 years. And he's just one of these really uplifting people. He's the kind, it, it, we look forward to the elevator door opening in the morning and hear him whistling coming off. And I've always said about David that if he, even if he didn't do a thing except come in the office and just be around. He's the kind of person that lifts us all up and makes you want to be a better person. And I'm terribly guilty of putting him on a pedestal, but he's very deserving of being on that pedestal. And and knowing him uh, also, not near as well as you do, but I couldn't echo those sentiments any more than what you just described, Becky. And, uh, you know, again, sort of thinking about for both of us that we're both in ministry 
out of non-faith-based organizations, that there's still an element mm-hmm. of ministry, whether we're it's with a ministry or it's just in life. And, right. uh, and I want to kind of, uh, with that in mind, kind of connect you back to where I first met you. You were on staff at the Tulsa Air United Way, right? It was it that many years ago, was it, Mike? <laughs> well, I, you know, that's how you look at it, uh, but right. it, it seems like a while. Talk a little bit about how you got to Tulsa Air United Way, what you did there. The Tulsa Air United Way experience uh, was just something that even to this day has it had impact, has had benefits, not just for me, but for our clients, the relationships that you build there. I always said about working at the United Way, you always... See, and I'm sure it's similar here with Mental Health Association, you see the best side of everybody because they come through those doors and they're there ready to roll up their sleeves and to do. They know the importance of the work that's happening there. It's They have a small staff, so they really rely so much on the volunteer resources that they have. You know, the work that in the community investment side that the 150 to 180 volunteers do doing the research on all the agencies that uh, the partner agencies and really assessing every year. It's not they don't it's not do it once and they're in for five years. It's every year they're reviewing and Mental Health Association has been one of them for forever. Um, You go through this every year where the volunteers come and they just kind of pour through and and assess the work that you're doing and um, and and do this for all of these agencies. And so as an an investor in United Way, we can all have confidence that the very best work is being done and that our that there is a return on our investment that we're making there. So it was and I was I headed up the communications uh, effort there. It was um, really such a wonderful experience working with so many incredible people. We just had the United Way annual meeting a couple of days ago and it was fun to be thinking about people like Clydella Henschel again, yes, who was really instrumental in the, I was just telling somebody this story yesterday. So someone that's very focused on inclusion and diversity, myself and with our, with my partners and the staff at our firm, I always appreciated that when Kathleen Cohen, who was CEO at the time, and I think Jack Zink was involved in this, um, went to visit with Dave Henschel to invite him to serve as the campaign chair of the United Way. And this would have been in 92. His response was that he he wanted to meet with Clydella and he said, I'll do it as long as Clydella and I can co-chair it. And Clydella was, and so Dave was CEO of Oxy at the time, Occidental, and Clydella was the one that had been spending all the volunteer hours at United Way helping stuff packets with the campaign materials and things with this group that they used to refer to as the drivers. And so Clydella, they, um, of course, she then was the first woman to be involved in leadership and they were the uh, co-chaired the campaign that year. So I think it was the first time for co-chairs and then certainly for the first time for a woman to be involved. And kudos for Dave for making that happen and for asking for that. And so I, you fast forward, I remember being in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, where my husband's from, and I was meeting with some other communications and marketing professionals from other United Ways. And a woman from Pennsylvania was talking about this little thing that they had in Pittsburgh called Day of Caring. And I was very curious about it. And as I learned about what the the United Way Day of Caring was there, I was very excited. And I came back and uh, went to Kathleen and said, this is something we just have to do here. This is something that would be wonderful for Tulsa. And I 
I don't think Kathleen had the vision for that right at that moment. And um, a few weeks later, Clydella and Dave and all of us are at a United Way conference. And I whispered to Clydella and I said, I'd love for you to... to um, go over here and go to this little workshop with me. I want you to hear about this United Way Day of Caring thing. And Clydella was very excited about it. And she came back and went into a meeting with Hans Helmrich and several people. He said, we're going to do this in Tulsa. And Hans, I need 10000 from you. And she's going around the room pointing and, and she collects the money and we were off and running. And so we had the first United Way Day of Caring. And now we have one of, if not the best, United Way Day of Carings in the country. So uh, we can give Clydella credit for that. And of course, uh, you know, that was my first year as the executive director of Mental Health Association of Oklahoma. Oh, so uh, Clydella was and, and Dave uh, were that was the year they chaired the campaign. And I remember also Clydella wanted to visit every single yes. United Way agency. And she did it. And she, she did it. She did it. And uh, and then I was also very involved in the first day of caring uh, mm-hmm. also where uh and it became a huge thing for us. And we saw right away the benefit to not only us as an organization, but just to get uh, volunteers in companies who were asked to give every year who might not necessarily fully understand what it was about. So right. they got to come out and work with us side by side. And of course, with our housing programs beginning to take off, it just fit right in and um, became very, very valuable to us. But then to know that then those volunteers could go back and tell their colleagues, hey, I was out to that agency. This is real stuff. And so that really helped our campaign here in Tulsa grow dramatically right. in terms of the level of giving. And, and of course, uh, so Clydella and Dave, they're, they're heroes for me, too. And we were kind of right there at that point in time uh, together. And I remember that that period of time very distinctly. Uh, and again, I think that was beginning to lay the foundation for you. Of course, uh, and we fast forward uh uh, and you have were you and Jack were actually the chairs. How many years later? Twenty five, twenty two, something like that. Something yes, like uh-huh. that. Years <laughs> later, that you chaired that campaign. And I remember. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember. It. I, I I was so taken. Uh, that you had were in, uh, you know, sometimes the campaigns there might have been wives involved, but um, with the exceptional Clydell, sometimes the. Uh, you know, again, I don't. I want to be fair here, but sometimes uh, it was primarily the men, and uh, in uh, you and Jack, it was primarily you. And Jack was a big support to you. Is that a absolutely. fair, a fair that, statement? Absolutely. So that was in 2013, and um, I will never forget when Mark Graham, who was CEO at that time, had um, asked me if I would meet him. And to to visit, and I remember sitting at this table in a restaurant that had kind of high chairs, and he was inviting me to serve as the chair of the United Way campaign. And I literally almost fell off my chair. I just could not believe it. You know, you just sit there and it's sort of one of those out-of-body experiences because it's um, it's just, you know, an organization that I just think so much of and has helped so many of us, you know, mental health associations, so many. I think it's 59 agencies that are funded right now that are partner agencies of United Way. But to be able to have that opportunity to be the first woman to be the solo chair, I felt a lot of 
responsibility. Um, I didn't want to let the agencies down. I wanted to make sure that we were going to be able to do something and, and make goal. I wanted to answer pass. I wanted to uh, make sure I didn't let the women of this community down by being the first woman to be a solo chair. I certainly wanted to draw on everything I learned from Clydella in that role when she co-chaired with Dave. And, you know, you mentioned about her visiting the agencies. Not only did she visit the agencies, it wasn't just going in and having an hour-long meeting or tour. She spent half days and full days at these agencies during that time, and she really committed the time to this. So when Mark asked me if I would be willing to do it, and I was sort of, he said, you can think about it tonight and visit with Jack and get back with me. And I said, I don't have to think about it. I know I want to do it. And um, was very excited and motivated and probably a little scared to death at the same time. And But I, I knew I wanted to do those agency visits. And so I, I did that. And then at that point, we had just started the Women's Leadership uh, Council, which now is called Women United. And I had had the opportunity to serve as the first chair of that and had recruited Allison Anthony who's now the CEO of the United Way, to be my vice chair to chair it the following year after me. So those women went with me, and we would all visit these agencies together. So I wasn't alone in that. And so, yes, you get, I mean, so many stories. You're meeting with the staff who I adore, the hard work that's done by uh by the staff members of these United Way partner agencies, you know, the, the work that they do, the commitment they make for not the greatest pay. And then they're also digging in their own pockets and going above and beyond and doing extra things all the time. Right. I know that. Right. And just such a committed group of individuals. And we are so fortunate to have the and, and these are the, the it's the United Way agency staff members that are contributing over a million dollars uh, every year now to the United Way campaign, which is phenomenal. You know, I mean, you, you all are doing things to support your own organizations, a lot of efforts that you have internally to support your own organizations, but then also recognizing the importance of, of supporting the United Way and to give over a million dollars is just remarkable. If we don't believe in it and we won't invest in it, why should we ask anybody else right. to? That's right. kind of our mantra around here in terms of giving. And our campaign here has grown so much now. It just amazes me. And we have so much fun in friendly competition doing it and just uh, everybody on the staff. And it's become like a huge, uh, uh, it's team building is what it is. Absolutely. And, and right. uh, yeah. And so to, to see that happen. During the year you chaired the campaign, Becky, some personal things happened that were uh, very difficult in your life. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? The very year you were you were the chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my brother Billy was uh, Billy really um, struggled a lot in his life. He's really. Handsome, beautiful man, extremely talented, beautiful singing voice. He acted. He did commercials. I remember going to a grocery store and looking in the frozen food section, and he's on the cover of a bluebell box dressed like a police officer or something, which I just thought was hilarious. But um, he just a really talented person. But he um, had he was bipolar, and um, 
Billy had, had um, and he would self-medicate. So he had graduated from the University of Tulsa with his degree in psychology and the, which was, was wonderful. And I was so proud of him for doing that. But on the flip side of that, then he felt like he knew more than everybody else. And so he didn't need to go see a therapist or to, to get help. He didn't want to be on medication. Uh, he, he liked the highs too much. He didn't like the lows, but he liked the highs. And he didn't want that kind of uh, midline level. So he was uh, never interested in going and getting the, the right help for uh, his mental health disease. And he, so he would self-medicate and he would just kind of disappear for periods, for a few days at a time and, and really struggled. And then over the years, he would, you know, his paranoia really increased and people were out to get him and, you know, just different the things that can happen with that, um, what the drugs can do to you and so forth. He did go into 12 and 12, which I think is another f wonderful program that we have here. And that was kind of at a, at toward the very end of his life. And he was there for uh, over two months and he graduated from the program. But he really, I really wanted for him to go into their transitional living program, which I really look at that as where the rubber really hits the road in terms of holding you accountable. And that meant for Billy to be able to get a job and to keep a job. And Billy would say that he was lazy. He would say that about himself. And so, um, Things just advanced, and so it just it happened to coincide with the um, the chairing of the United Way campaign. It was the it was the week that the campaign was kicking off, and um, I happened to be in Washington D.C. on a Sunday. Flew in that morning for a state chamber event that I was going to be for a couple of days before coming back for the kickoff. And he um, and I got a call from my older sister Bonnie that the police were going into his apartment in Houston and and they found Billy there and he had, so we don't know Billy could have died any one of 3 days there which is that's always disturbed me that we don't know exactly what date he died but so it was um i had to you know i had about a week there i I'd, I'd always anticipated that this might be the way things would end, but it didn't make it any easier. And, uh, you know, you go through guilt. I'm like, could I have done more to try to help him? You know, we had a lot of conversations over the years, but it was just hard. Um, you know, how, how could I have motivated him to go into that transitional living program? What could I have done? And uh, which I think is a normal thing that people probably go through to a lot of um, so a lot of things on my mind, and I also knew at the same time I was shouldering this responsibility to raise this, provide leadership in raising this money for these agencies who I think so much of and wanted to be able to support. And um, I remember Jack saying, Becky, I think you're going to need some help. And it was, um, I called Tristess Grief Center, which is one of the United Way partner agencies, and I talked to the director at that time, and I said, I think I'm going to need to come and see you after this campaign is over. I'm kind of struggling here. And I just made a decision that the best way I could handle this, and my life is an open book 
anyway, was that I just had to talk about it. So it was, Mark Graham was wonderful. Mark and Billy had been in high school together. They were in the same senior class together. So it was so nice because Mark and I were spending a lot of time together going out and doing speaking engagements. And I just chose to talk about Billy. And I talked about his struggle and uh, his addiction and his and his mental health. And, um, and Billy's outcome was different than what we all wanted for him. But it was so interesting. That ended up really being very th- therapeutic for me. It, I could talk, uh, I could be real with people about this impacts my life. I, you know, I don't know all the stories that happened, but the fact is mental health issues, as we all know, it's a rare thing if I talk to somebody and they don't have something like that in their family or in, with close friends. It's just so common. And I'm just committed to, I've written about it. I've written editorials about it. I talk about it because it is real. And anything that I can do to help remove the stigma of mental health so people feel the freedom more to talk about it and to seek out the help and know that there are so many people that deal with this and that just because somebody talks about it, acknowledges that they have that, that doesn't mean that's the end of their job, that workplaces are going to be supportive (laughs) of these things. And if they're not, then I would say there's probably a better place to work. You know, but it's um, and it's it's just been really healing for me, um, therapeutic for me to be able to be open about it, to talk about it. And it opens up a lot of conversations with other people and just to be able to encourage people that the help is there through Mental Health Association, through so many different, you know, to, to whatever their resources that are available to them to take advantage of that and get the support, get to stay on the medication, stay committed to that. And I will tell you, I, I, I feel a little bit guilty about it, too, because it's I know it's much easier for me to talk about mental health issues. I don't personally have to deal with that. I don't struggle. I don't have depression or anything like that. So that's where some of the guilt might come in. And I know I'm sitting here talking about my brother and he's not here to be with me and and talk about this. So I'm telling his story. But I, I just feel really motivated to do everything I can to be able to talk about this and how it is common and that there are so many wonderful resources out there and that people really can get help. We see it all the time, right, Mike? I mean, with people who, if they can see the therapist, they take the medication, that they really can live a normal life. You know, yeah, we like to say treatment works. Uh, yes. And but again, we still live in a culture that the stigma prevents people in many ways from asking or uh, accessing the care and the treatment that is actually highly effective. But it's just again, we're in this constant effort to uh, raise awareness and help people uh, normalize the fact that physical health, mental health, addiction, they're just part of life. And right. I think that you, through your journey, not only d- discovered that, but you talk about it. I've heard you talk about it many, many times. And in your leadership role in this community and state, you know, people hear your message and they they identify with it in a way that helps them uh, be able to take those steps, either they themselves or on behalf of their family members. And I think we, the Mental Health Association, are incredibly indebted to you for your, as you said, your you live your life as an open book. It's one of the things that people love and admire about you, your honesty, your transparency. And, uh, you know, that makes it easier for all of us to ask for help or to receive help. And uh, some of the listeners are aware that the firm, 
firms, offices are downtown. Uh, and then you uh, and Jack live downtown. And so downtown, I've heard you many times talk about that people that are without homes that are on the streets are your neighbors. And right. you and Jack both have lived that way. And that philosophy, that spiritual approach to recognizing all of your neighbors, including people who are down living there without homes, that has given you impetus to develop relationships with them in different ways. And I know of two instances in particular. Um, I'm sure I don't know all of them, but do you mind talking a little bit about that? I've worked downtown for a long, long time, but it's you, you get a whole different perspective when you get to live downtown. We moved from... Um, it was about eight years ago that we moved downtown and lived right across the street from where we work. And uh, we went in there thinking we'd just be there for maybe six months. And we knew it in the first few days we were we were committed. We loved it down there. And there, there. But it was very eye opening to realize uh, who our new neighbors were. And it's it is Mike, as you know, there was um, J.K. was a about a. I'm guessing 80, 85 pound little lady that uh, was about my age who was downtown. It was Jack and I moved in that apartment in November. So we were going into the cooler season. And so I start, um, Jack and I start seeing this lady. And the best way I know how to describe her is she always seemed like a little mouse because she was so tiny and she was just always, you'd see her all around downtown in little nooks and crannies, uh, sleeping. There was uh, clearly a mental health issue there. But she was, uh, she was very sweet. And I remember calling you. I've called you so many times over the years. You were such a help with Billy uh, and helping my mom and my sisters and I understand how to deal with that. And I'll forever be indebted to you for that. You're stuck with me, Mike. You got a friend. Oh, for life. It, it, it works both ways, <laughs> Becky, believe me. And then when we go down and we're starting to interact with JK and I'm calling you and I'm saying, I'm just like, how do you, how do you connect with the homeless? How do you build a connection with them and get to know them and build trust most importantly? And you really coached me and through that. And Jack and I really worked together. It was a, it's been a team effort uh, ever since. So we were looking out trying to find JK. And I can remember on a New Year's Day, Jack was in Pittsburgh and I was, it was snowing that day. And I was standing by where the fountain is downtown. And JK and I stood there and we talked for about 20 minutes. And that was the longest period of concentrated time I had with her because she would, um, you know, it was hard for her just to stay focused for very long there. And I was just, you know, saying, uh, and she called me her friend, Becky, which was always really lovely. And I was honored by that. And I was, we were talking about food and getting help and so forth. And she just struggled with, she, she didn't, you know, we talked about the Tulsa Day Center and we uh, talked about Iron Gate and other places down, resources that were available. And she just couldn't do it. She couldn't walk inside the doors of those agencies uh, because I just feel confident that she may have been institutionalized at some point in her life. And I think she just had such a fear built up. That's my interpretation of um, that if she went in those doors, that she'd be locked up and never be able to to be out. And uh, so she was just, she was running scared 
all the time. And um, another time I came, one morning I came out and I was looking for and I found her around a corner and she was kind of tucked away and I was just saying, good morning, JK, how are you doing? She said, Becky, I have a terrible toothache and I just need to get this tooth pulled. And I said, um, well, I, my dentist is around the corner. I'd be happy to take you over there and I know we can get a professional to help with this. And she's, she again, feared to go in there and she's saying, um, she said, I'd really like for you to pull it. And I was, I just said, JK, I, I'll do anything for you. But I, I said, I couldn't pull Annie's tooth when she was a baby. Cause I just, it's, that's just makes me, you know, I just don't feel like I can do that, but I would love to be able to help you. And I, I think about that and I'm thinking, what, should, what else could I have done that day? But she just did not want to be able to, did not want to go and get help there. So she, so there was this fellow who was sitting on the bench on the south side of our building who, when Jack and I were trying to find JK one evening, we were stopping and asking him. And he was this really handsome African-American man, my age, who was sitting there. And I'd seen him on that bench for quite a bit. And he was always reading, always had books, always had an earpiece and was listening, as it turns out, to another book or music as he read um, but I mean, just very well studied. And his name was Cardell, Cardell Pearson. And you and I, Mike, were talking at that time as well. And you were coaching me on things that I could say. And I, you know, it's kind of started with us. Cardell was trying to help us find what he had watched JK and was trying to help us try to figure out where she was and so forth. And from there, the friendship started. And it was just an incredible friendship. And uh, he, he was just, he came right at that time that uh, we had lost Billy, and he really helped me through that. He had moved out of the house that his mother had been in, where he'd been with his mom, and his mom had been taken to a nursing home, and he had been helping take care of her, but he uh, admitted that he had a drug addiction, and his he had other, uh, there were other people living in the home there as well, and he made a decision to leave that house and to go on the streets to get away from drugs, which, you know, is hard for people to fathom. Right. So his his home was that bench outside of our apartment. Cardell never asked me for for a dime, never asked Jack for a dime that, that whole time he was there. And we just started um, building up the relationship and a real friendship was struck, a very genuine, deep friendship. And he... Um, would talk to me and help me understand about Billy's addiction and how, you know, what kind of an impact that can have on you. And how, and you'll have to forgive me because I get kind of emotional talking about Cardell. But he was uh, such a help to me. Just uh, he referred to himself as my brother of another color. And he was, uh, I remember when we were working, you and 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 I, we you were advising us and working with uh, Patrice Pratt and some other people um, and trying to figure out how we could help him and how we could get Cardell into housing. And I remember walking up to him and saying, Cardell, would you like to have an apartment? And he said, he said, Becky, what I need is a job because he had a strong work ethic. He really did. And um so he was, you know, he was thinking the cart was before the horse there. And I was like, I think we can help you here. And, and within 
uh, a day. He was in the Tulsa County shelter. And within a couple of months of that time, he was had the key and he was opening, turning the key on the door to his new apartment. And uh, friends, we went out on um, social media and talked about Cardell and that he was getting this apartment. And there were so many things that you all provided. And so many friends came from people that never even met Cardell who donated all of these things. And so I talk about, I remember when Bia and I went to visit Cardell after he was excited for us to come over and see after everything was put together and we went over and uh, Bia and I went in and he was showing us all around his apartment and he was so excited to offer Bia a popsicle from his very own freezer. And it was, uh, went back and I was always impressed with his attention to detail and the respect he showed for his clothes. Um, and he ironed every article of clothing that he had and everything was in his closet, color coded, hangers were one inch apart. And he was so proud of that apartment. And he just grew from there. I've, I've talked to um, Bill Masters Masterson, who was the editor of the Tulsa World at that time, and asked him if there was an opportunity for employment at the Tulsa World. The Tulsa World hired him, and he worked nights there. We got him a bicycle. He would ride his bike to work because he didn't have a license at that point. He was, he was clean and sober for six and a half years. And he was so successful with that. And when you think about uh, what we all know about meth and how highly addictive that is, uh, to think that he could could do that and um, was just phenomenal. And I was just so proud of him. He met his wife at the Tulsa World, the woman that became his wife. He went on and worked at Aon. Aon was wonderful with him. And um and it was just about a year ago, it was last March, that um, we, and, and I have to tell you, Cardell just continued. It was always about what he could do to help others. He was always focused on how he could give back. I remember he contributed to the United Way campaign. He was helping family members who also had addiction issues. Uh, he was helping my brother-in-law with doing some laying new tile on the floor of their house. I mean, he, our, our families just adopted each other. He went to all of the, you know, just spent a lot of time with my family and they all loved him. But last March, the, and the addiction came back and he, he had disappeared for a few days and it was just something that, um, the, I think he just got tired you know, I think he, um, he, he went and then it, it just kind of, it just, it had him by the throat again. And so a couple of months later, he disappears again. And then it kind of built from there. And you and I, you were so gracious with your time. And we spent time with Cardell and his family and in the fall had uh, some different meetings with him and just trying to talk him through his recovery and how to get back on the right path. And, I think he I th he really wanted that, and um, he wanted it for others. And but it it um, but unfortunately it he uh, he passed away a few about a month ago. And um, I I I will always miss him, but I'm just so proud of him. Yes, you know, I mean to that he was able to be the success that he was and that he did so much and he did so much for others. And, and, um, 
and he just helped me so much, you know, just will always be very dear to me and will miss him. But, um, but he, and I know that I thought about this when he died and I'm thinking, what would Cardell want me to be able to say about, you know, how his story ended and he was always authentic and real about things. And, you know, he's, he would, uh, I know he would, if he, he would want his story to be told and he wants people to understand that it, um, you have to really be able to stick with it once again, to really be able to, to stay. Um, I think he, he struggled with getting to meetings in, in the end and, um, it just, it just had him and it was just his time. For our listeners, uh, uh, you know, Becky can call up the governor, the heads of industry across the state. They take her call. But yet you hear there how she lives her life every day that makes her who she is and why those people take her call. Because she not only helps and, and gives it to others, but she's also receives help. And, you know, hear a story of a man who was homeless on the street, was your neighbor. And uh, in the end, it may be that you may have benefited from that relationship Every bit as much, or maybe more, oh, and even and then Cardale, <laughs> definitely right. more. You know, I spent some time together yesterday, and I, I just went home thinking about how uh, honored and thankful I am that you're one of my friends, and you're a friend to so many, and uh, so many people always uh, feel. Uh, you allow you allow people into your life in a way that changes our lives and my life, and. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just a, you're, you're an amazing person. And I know you're uncomfortable <laughs> when I say those things to you. <laughs> yes. And uh, you and I relate to that. Uh, you know, I, I get uh, I get very uncomfortable. Uh, we don't like compliments that well. We like to give compliments. We like to take them. But, uh, you know, this is your time to come on our podcast and for us to <laughs> honor you. And I can't thank you enough to come on and uh, be our guest. We're going to have to do a part two. We didn't even really get to the firm and how you got to the firm. I, I wanted to cover that, but I felt like uh, that's really the foundation of you being so transparent with yourself and how you are a, uh, you what's made you. And, you know, kind of coming full circle and closing, Becky, you're still in ministry. You're still in ministry. Uh, so are you, Mike? Well, uh, <laughs> and you, and you've been such a help to me and to my family, and countless people in the in the state and in the nation. How lucky I am to know you and um, to have had a chance to be able to to work side by side with you on things. And I'm aware of the calls that you get throughout the day and at night and on the weekends. And you're never too tired for those calls. And you just have made such impact um, and had, you're just, um, just a really special person. And, and I um, just, I love you very much. And I'm very grateful for you and grateful that our community gets to benefit from everything that you've done for all of us. Well, it's, it's very much mutual, Becky. And I, I feel uh, exactly the same way. Um, and to close, 
Becky, can you just uh, share just something out of your heart, parting wisdom for our listeners? Well, it's interesting with talking about ministry because it goes back to a favorite scripture of mine where it just says to let us never be weary in doing good. And I keep that in my office. and That's what I try to live by and what I think we all should live by. So go do good things. 